Hello and welcome to this message from the river. We hope that this message from Pastor Billy Pate inspires and challenges you towards a greater relationship with Jesus Christ. Now let's join Pastor Billy Pate for another exciting message. You say come to the Today I want to deal with the subject of fear because fear is really one of those, the most effective tools or tactics uh, of the enemy. You, you've all seen the acrostic that, that's fear. Fear means false evidence appearing real. You've seen that. And, and the fact is that is true. That's what fear is. It is, it is an idea. It is a concept. It is, it is a possibility. It is something that could happen, but it's not necessarily something that will happen. And so many times the enemy builds and builds and builds these fears. He knows what is a trigger in your life. And he will take those triggers and he will manipulate them. And he will try to incite you into an irrational place to get you moving without thinking. Fear. He uses fear to build false sense of realities in our minds. And in an attempt... To create that reality in real life. In other words, what he's doing is he creates this concept. This idea that we take hold of in our minds. And if we dwell on those things long enough. If we focus on those things long enough. His hope is that eventually those things that we fear. Will eventually become our true reality. The Bible talks about this in Job 3.25. This is what it says. It says, for the thing I greatly feared. Has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. There's a really powerful concept here that Job gives us in this verse, chapter 3 of 25. He says, This thing that I feared has finally happened to me. The thing that I've dreaded has now come upon my life. And that is what happens to us as Christians. That's what happens to us as people that are lost even. It doesn't matter where we are. If we focus on our fears, if we are driven by fears, the thing that we fear will ultimately take hold of our lives. It has a way of doing that. Fear, in essence, is faith in reverse. It is the antithesis of faith. It, it is something that, br- faith is something that brings us, think about this, it brings us into the grace of God. And the grace of God is what provides us with everything that we need. Without grace, we don't have what we need. Grace provides us with everything we need. But to get to grace, I have to have faith. I have to believe that God is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And so faith is what brings me into grace and allows me to receive from God through grace everything that I have need of in my life. When I think about fear being the reverse of faith, fear brings me into dread. Fear brings me into my greatest fears. It takes me into a place where all of those fears are ultimately realized and experienced. And so what I'm saying to you this morning as the church is that we cannot let fear drive our decisions. You cannot let fear drive your decisions. You cannot let fear drive your financial decisions. You cannot let fear drive your, your, your family decisions. You cannot let fear drive your marriage decisions. If you let fear drive your decisions, you're going to make bad decisions. And ultimately, the thing that you fear is what you're going to drive yourself into because fear takes itself into deeper dread. 
We cannot let it drive our decisions. April says this often, and many of you that have come to her for counseling have heard her say this great little wisdom nugget that we do not make decisions based on fear, guilt, or shame. We do not make decisions. The church of the living God this morning. Am I talking to anybody this morning? We do not make decisions based on fear, guilt, or shame. You're making decisions based on the wrong things if you make them on fear, guilt, and shame. So say that with me this morning. I will not make decisions based on fear, guilt, or shame. I will not do it. I am not doing it. I'm not going to be manipulated into something that I don't believe is right. I'm not going to be driven by fear into something that I think is wrong. I'm not going to be making decisions based on fear, guilt, or shame. We're not going to let the enemy use scare tactics. Scare tactics to manipulate us into walking into dread and walking away from grace. So help me preach this morning, scare tactics. Father, I thank you this morning. I thank you for the Holy Spirit in this place. I thank you that, Father, in this room there are people who have been making decisions based on fear, guilt, and shame. But today that stops. We draw, we draw a line in the sand and we tell the enemy he has no right to manipulate us in that manner any longer. Father, we make our decisions based on faith and based on faith on you. And who you are, that you are a good father. And that you give us good gifts, Father, today. We thank you for that in the name of Jesus this morning. And everybody says amen. Fake news. One of the tools of the media has always been scare tactics. They realize that masses of people generally tend to believe what they're told. And oftentimes they use fear to manipulate those masses to do and respond and react to things. If you don't vote for so-and-so, then the whole world is going to collapse. Or how many of you remember 1999 and the Y2K scare? I remember it well. Media and others, people with an agenda, were telling us we needed to to prepare for a complete system shutdown. That everything was going to be, it was going dark in 2000. As soon as that clock hit, we were all in trouble. And we were going to be thrown back to the Stone Age and barbarians. And we were going to be, you know, all of this stuff. I remember people buying 55-gallon barrels of rice and beans and storing water and all kinds of stuff because they were afraid of what was going to happen. And it was crazy. And guess what really happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. I remember large groups of people that were just completely terrified over the possibility Of what might happen. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting today that we shouldn't prepare. I believe in preparation. I believe that you should prepare for contingencies. I believe that you should prepare for different uh, scenarios that could possibly happen. I don't think there's anything wrong with being prepared. But there's a big difference between preparation and paralysis. And when we go from preparation to paralysis, we have let fear begin to make our decisions and control what we're doing. Fear if fear is paralyzing us from moving, from living, from breathing. Fear needs to be dealt with in the life of a person. Wisdom prepares. Fear paralyzes. Fear is not from God. It is from the enemy. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, 
but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But let's look at that passage before this one in verse 6 and see what it says. Look at it with me in verse 6 on the screen. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And then he says in verse 7, For God has not given you the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Why does he say verse 7? He says it because of verse 6. Verse 6 says, There is a gift of God in you that was brought to you by the laying on of hands. That God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you. God created you for something. And he's saying to you this morning, Don't let fear get in the way of what God has prepared for you. And God has planned for you. Don't let fear stop you from being who God created you to be. This indicates to us that the goal of fear is to stifle and hinder what? The gift of God. It is to stop you. It is to paralyze you. It is to keep you nullified and neutralized so that you can accomplish what God has called you to do. Now I want to take you to 1 Kings chapter 19 I want to look at the life of Elijah. And I'm going to use his life to show you how the enemy uses fear to try and limit and subdue the gift of God. The background of the story in verse 19, Elijah, the the kingdom of Israel led by Ahab and his wife Jezebel is an evil kingdom, an evil king, evil leadership. And they have created all these false gods, primarily Baal, and they are Baal worshipers. They, are, they have walked away from the true God, serving God, serving the God of Israel. And they are serving false gods, primarily Baal. And Elijah has had enough. And he waits till the word of God. But at the word of God, he goes and he confronts the prophets of Baal. He confronts Jezebel. He confronts the entirety of the congregation of Israel. And there's a showdown at Mount Carmel between their false god and the real god. And you know the story well that he lets them go first and he says, whichever god burns up the sacrifice, he's going to be the god. And so they cry out to their god over and over again. Nothing happens. They cut themselves. Nothing happens. They're doing everything they know. They're pulling out the whole luggage of ideas and there is nothing happening. And then all of a sudden it's Elijah's turn and he says, look, I don't want to just do it. To just burn this up, he says, we're going to do this dramatic. He says, pour some water over the thing. And he says, fill up the trench that surrounds it. And he covered that thing with water. And then he calls on the name of the Lord. And God sends fire and he burns it all to the ground. There's no question at this point which God is real. No question which God is the true God. And so now we go to verse 1 of chapter 19. And this is what happens on the heels of one of the greatest showdowns and greatest victory between God and the enemy. This is what happens. Let me just stop there and say that on the heels of your greatest victory a lot of times are your greatest struggles. That when you are at the mountaintop of life and things are going at its best, I'm not saying this to discourage those moments because we ought to enjoy the present moment. Amen. But I'm just telling you that on the heels of a lot of times the greatest victories in your life are going to come some of the greatest challenges that you face. Some of the greatest moments of discouragement. And we see this right here in our verse. It says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also 
If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Verse 3. And when he, speaking of Elijah, saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. The first point this morning is this, that fear always portrays a worst case scenario. Always. Fear is always going to showcase the worst possible outcome every single time. This is a threat to Elijah and nothing more at this point. Would Jezebel kill Elijah if she had a chance? Of course she would. Of course she would. If she had the chance, she would instantly kill him and destroy him. That's what she wants to do. If the enemy had the chance, he would instantly destroy your life. He would love to do that. That's what he wants to do is to kill, steal, and destroy you. And so if she had the opportunity, she would do the same. But she can't because she's never going to get the chance. And the reason she's never going to get the chance is because God's hand is on Elijah. But Elijah is going to run for his life. He is ultimately going to run to a cave and hide. And here's what I would propose to you that this morning is this. That if Jezebel couldn't kill him in the middle of her crowd, why would she think that she could touch him in the midst of a cave? If Jezebel can't touch him right there in public space, surrounded by her people, why would she think she would ever have the opportunity to touch him any other time? But the enemy has found Elijah's fear. He's, he's tapped into what triggers Elijah. Elijah is afraid of dying. And so the threat of death instantly incites him to an irrational place. Listen, think about this. Fear always wants to incite you to an irrational place. Being irrational means I am acting or reacting without thinking. That I am not really considering the overall outcome, the possibilities. I'm not thinking about every angle. I'm not considering the God factor in my situation at all. And so I've been moved from a rational place of, of dealing and working and serving in the, the plan of God to an irrational place where I'm just on the run and I'm just trying to get away. Elijah's not thinking clearly. His fear is overriding his faith. And it's moving him off a solid foundation. Because here's the deal. He is anointed in the place of his assignment. You're always anointed in your place of your assignment. The enemy is determined to move him from that place of assignment to a place of vulnerability. God has just accomplished the, one of the greatest miracles in the history of the Bible through Elijah in front of the entire nation of Israel. What is Jezebel going to do to him there? Nothing. So fear is driving him from a solid place, the place of victory, to a place of vulnerability, away from his assignment. And instead of standing firm in his assignment, he steps away from it. Don't let fear drive you away from your assignment. Don't let fear manipulate you away from the place of your anointing. The enemy is determined. He knows that the anointing destroys the yoke of bondage. 
And he knows that if you're anointed, he can't touch you. He can't mess with you. And so he has to bait you away from that place of assignment and get you out of that place of anointing and get you stepping away from your solid foundation of faith. And if he can do that, then he has a chance to derail you, destroy you, discourage you, disgruntle you. He has a chance to mess you up. And that's what he will always do is move you out of a place that you are solid and get you on shaky ground so he can begin to manipulate you and control you. Don't let fear drive you away from your assignment. Verse 3 says this. I think this is peculiar. And when he, speaking of Elijah, saw that, saw that, he arose and ran for his life. First of all, what did he see? I have two questions here. What did he see and where did he see it? Because the Bible reads that a messenger came from Jezebel and told him what she was going to do. But the Bible says here that when Elijah saw that, he ran for his life. So what did he see and where did he see it? What he saw was the betrayal of the greatest fear, the worst case scenario, and where he saw it was in his mind. That's where he saw it. None of this was happening. It was just a possibility that it could happen. What he saw was the worst case scenario and where he saw it was in his mind. Fear always portrays a possibility, not a probability. It's a possibility. But it's not a probability. It is always the worst case scenario. Always. And so in your life, When you are incited by fear, you are always going to go to the place of the worst possible outcome every single time. That is the worst that can happen. Many times in my life, there's things, there's certain things in my life because of the way I've been raised and the way I've experienced life and the things that have happened to me. Naturally, there's fears there. Everybody has them. Everybody has some fears that are hardwired into them. And the enemy will discover those and he will manipulate those and he will trigger those. And so what you have to do is you have to face those fears. And you face those fears by looking at the worst possible scenario and saying there is life on the other side of the worst possible outcome that could happen to me. As a child of God, what can the enemy do to you that there's not something better on the other side of it? Even if he takes your life as a Christian, here's the good news. On the other side of death, there is everlasting life for you in the heavenly kingdom of God. And so you look past it and you say, if that happens to me, nevertheless, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to live for God. I'm still going to be faithful to him and I'm still going to keep my faith in him. Amen. Verse 4 says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. The second point. Fear wants to put you on the run. Fear wants to get you running. Fear will cause you to run even before you really even know what you're running from. We went on a missions trip a few years ago to Little Rock, Arkansas. And you think, 
What missions needs to happen in Little Rock, Arkansas? Little Rock was the gang capital of the United States when we went and did this mission trip, and we were in the inner city, and it was really kind of a dangerous place to be. We were safe if we followed certain procedures, and they would tell us, you know, don't do certain things, and if you do that, then you'll be fine. Uh, and so, you know, one of them was watch, don't walk through gates and, you know, walk up to people's houses. Don't, don't knock on their doors if there's a sign that says no trespassing. Things like, you know, common sense stuff. And so we had this young man that was with us, and he was a funny kid anyway. And he's walking back to the bus. We had been gone, and we had, you know, we had gone through some things that were a little bit scary at times. And so our, our sensitivities were heightened and uh, we were, you know, kind of on guard, I guess you would say. And so he's walking back to the bus. We're sitting in the bus. We're watching him walk back. And all of a sudden, he walks by this chain link fence. And this little chihuahua dog comes barreling out of this house and runs up to that fence. And, and Aaron, before he even thinks, he takes off running for his life. He is running as fast as he possibly can. He's not looking, and he's running as fast as he can, and I believe that the door was shut on the bus, and he runs right into the door of the bus trying to get on that thing. And we are dying laughing because it's a little chihuahua dog, and not only that, it is behind a fence. But that is a great example of what fear does to us. It gets us running before we start thinking. It'll cause us to hurt ourselves. Cause us to trip up and cause us to look like fools in the end. We still have a good time over that. Fear will cause you to run before you know what you're even running from. And it will cause you to hurt yourself in the process. When we are faced with fear, we're either going to do one of two things. We're either going to run to Jesus or we're going to run to the fear. Elijah runs to the fear. Now I want you to watch this. He is afraid of dying. We established that. But he ultimately runs to a place where he's asking God to do what? To kill him. Now tell me the logic in that situation. I don't want to die, but God, will you kill me? You have lost your mind. You're not thinking. But he ultimately runs to that place where he asks God to kill him. In 1 Kings 19.4 it says, Now Lord, please take my life. He's running the wrong direction. And what is revealing for us in this passage is that Elijah is running to his fear, but he is packaging it as though he is running to God. Oh, boy. He is using God as a cover for his lack of faith. He's trying to make God party to his fear. He's trying to get God involved in his struggle. In his mess, so that he can blame it on God later that it didn't work out for him. Now, let me just ask you how many times are we doing the same thing? Where we're running to God, but we're really running to fear. And we're trying to, to use God as the reason why things aren't working out in our lives. Well, I guess God just shut the door for me. I guess God just doesn't want to work in my marriage. I guess God just doesn't want to help me. I guess God just doesn't want to bless me in my finances. I guess God just isn't going to heal me. I guess God, God isn't the problem this morning. God isn't the one this morning that is struggling with faith. 
God isn't the one this morning that is questioning what he said he would do. God isn't the one that is struggling to know even what he wants to do in every situation. And we do this all the time. And the fact is, the more churchy we are, the more we try to spiritualize things and use God as a cover for our lack of faith. That's just good preaching right there. The bottom line is that God does you no harm. God's not trying to keep you down. God's not trying to limit His kingdom to you. God's not trying to stop you from receiving everything that He died on the cross to give you and rose from the grave to give you. God's not doing that. I've come to tell you today that God is for you, not against you. He's your advocate, not your adversary today. He is your support, not your saboteur this morning. He isn't setting you up to fail. He isn't walking out on you. He isn't using you, then losing you. That's not God. He's with you all the way. And our choices in life are never His fault. The fact is, if you read Jesus in the garden, saying, not my will, but thy will be done, and only consider the cross, you're missing the point. Jesus had to go to the cross, and it was a a difficult thing, and it was a struggle. That's right, it was. But Jesus didn't go to the cross for the cross to be the ultimate end of what he was doing. Jesus had something on the backside of the cross in mind when he went to the cross. Jesus wouldn't have just went to the cross just to die on the cross. Jesus went to the cross so that he could be raised from the grave and that he could establish a kingdom on this earth. Jesus didn't just have the cross in mind. He had resurrection in mind. And so many times, we as the church, we die on the cross, but we stop there and we never rise again in the newness of life that God has created for us. And I'm telling you this morning, if you're just dying on the cross, you're falling short of what God has planned for you because He's always had in mind resurrection power for each and every one of His children. Fear makes us... Forget about the God factor every time. It, it takes it out of there. And it causes us to only focus on the natural causes surrounding. But God's grace is always there to bring us back. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad that when I get irrational. And I'm glad that when I lose sight of God's purpose in my life. And His presence in my life. That His grace is always sufficient to bring us back. Verse 5. This, this tells you how God's grace is working. He says He slept under the broom tree. And suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I think that's a question that we can let God ask all of us. What are you doing here today? What are you doing in this place in your life now? Where are you going? Where are you headed? What is your purpose? Why are you here? He runs to the cave. The third point is that fear wants to isolate you. The enemy always trying to get you isolated. He wants you living in a cave when you're meant for more than that. We are most vulnerable 
in isolation. Always, always, always most vulnerable in isolation. And if, and the enemy, the enemy is a master of convincing us of just the opposite. That we are most safe in isolation. When the truth is we are most vulnerable in isolation. And if there's something that I would like to, one day when I leave this church, if there's one thing that I want downloaded in the minds of the people, it is that you need each other. You are not meant to live in isolation. And if you could download that in the brain of every Christian, it would change everything because we have this concept that if we can get by ourselves, we can be safe. But it is an isolation that you will fail every single time. You cannot do this alone. God designed you to be a part of the body. But fear sends you always away from the crowd into the cave. You can't be who God created you to be in a cave. I said you can't be who God created you to be in a cave. You can't accomplish any of God's plans for you in a cave this morning. Because here's why. Every one of God's plans for His people are built on interaction with other people. There's not a plan of God that He has for any Christian that isn't built on interaction with other people. Because of why his ultimate goal is always to bring people into the kingdom of God. And you can't do that by yourself. You've got to have a lost person to bring them into the kingdom of God. You've got to have interaction to bring people into the kingdom of God. Your destiny requires interaction. And it cannot be accomplished in isolation. But pastor, it's messy with people. You're right. It's frustrating with people. You're telling the wrong person. I know that. But in everything in the kingdom, it is about people. And nothing in the kingdom is not about that. Your life, whether you like it or not, is tied to people. Your destiny is connected to people. And isolation always takes you out of your assignment and away from your destiny and puts you in the most vulnerable place you'll ever be. You're anointed in your assignment. And that anointing flows from the head of the body, which is Christ, through the body, which is the church. And in isolation, you are cut off from that anointing. Don't let the enemy drive you into a cave. Don't let fear isolate you. Another one of Elijah's fears is loneliness. Verse 10 says, so he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord of God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And now they want to take my life too. Now I want you to think about the the rationale of Elijah here. Loneliness is a fear, but he leaves the crowd of people. Why would he do that? By the way... The Bible tells us, Elijah says here, that the children of Israel have forsaken God's covenant. But if you look back in verse 39 of chapter 18, this is what it says. It's on the screen. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is our God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Take the prophets of Baal. Do not let any of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. 
It sounds like to me that the tide has turned. That the people that were against God now are for God and that they are actually trying now to straighten their lives up. But Elisha completely forgets about that. And now he's saying that nobody serves you, God. I'm the only one. Nobody's for you. Everybody's abandoned you. Fear. Corrupting the true picture of what's going on. Elijah is afraid of being alone, but who's making him lonely? I don't have any friends, Pastor. I don't know anybody at church. Well, you know what? It's hard to know anybody at church when you arrive five minutes late and you leave five minutes early. It's hard, it's hard to get relationships when you won't attend a small group. It's hard to build relationships when you won't show up for Sunday school. It's hard to build relationships when it's meet and greet time and you go hide in the bathroom. Who's making you lonely? Y'all okay? It's probably the Colorado air. I don't know. <clears throat> Feeling lightheaded. <laughs> I alone am left. That's true now because you made it true. It's true, but you made it true. God didn't create that scenario for your life. Nobody failed you. You made it true yourself. The reality is there's a lot of people that are with him. You are not alone. You've never been alone. Not only that, in verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 3, it says this, that when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Not only did he leave the crowd of people, but he says to the guy that's been with him through thick and thin, hey, buddy, you stay here too, because i got to go by myself. I'm so lonely. And we laugh about that, and we'll all talk about it and say, Elijah was nuts. But guess what? We do the same thing all the time. Isolate ourselves and then complain about being isolated. Oh, my goodness. Let me tell you this morning, you're not alone. And you've never been alone. Don't let fear isolate you and convince you that you are all by yourself. You need the body of Christ. Don't let fear put you on the run and fear put you in isolation because the enemy has you in his crosshairs when that happens. We hope you have enjoyed and been encouraged by this message. We'd love for you to join us at the river on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Sunday school and at 10.30 for morning worship. We also provide our midweek service for all ages on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. If you'd like to support the various ministries at the river, please go to our giving tab. We'd love for you to visit us at 1110 South Preston Street, Burkrenet, Texas. And as always, we encourage you to come experience life with us at the river. Till I found myself face down on your shore. You say, Come to the river.